Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, literary director of the Sun Valley Writers Conference. And this is Beyond the Page. My guest for this episode is journalist Eric Schwartzel, who for the past decade has been reporting on the entertainment industry for the Wall Street Journal, and who last year published a fascinating and groundbreaking book, Deep Reportage, Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy, which as the subtitle would suggest, is an eye-opening and fascinating narrative that details the surprising role of the movie business in the high stakes, deeply competitive contest between the U.S. and China. Welcome, Eric. Great to see you. John, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. Since you and I were last together discussing your book, Red Carpet, on stage in Sun Valley last summer, a lot has happened in the world and indeed in the world of entertainment, including, obviously, in U.S.-China relations following Russia's invasion of Ukraine last February. Now, you've been covering the film industry, as I said, for a full decade now, giving you an extraordinary perspective. So I guess I would ask you to begin by saying, since you have this perch in a way that very few do, what topics in particular have been highest on your radar this past year or so? And what has been keeping you up at night as you look around and say, what is going on? Uh, not only here, but abroad in China and elsewhere. Hmm. Well, I'll tackle that in two directions. I'll start with the China direction because I definitely fell into the trap that so many authors fall into, which is that while I was working on my book, I was convinced I was very late to the story. And I was swimming in that topic um, day in and day out. And I was convinced that my book was late to it because I was seeing it everywhere. And I felt like I need to get this book out as soon as possible, only to then find that when it came out last February, the timing couldn't have been better because what Hollywood had ingested and absorbed in the previous two decades of working in China, suddenly I think a lot of other businesses woke up to. And, and frankly, a lot of the world woke up to because we had a world where it seemed like the US-led global order was seeing real competition from a China-led global order or maybe a China alliance global order. And all of the experiences, some silly, some serious, that Hollywood had had by working in the market actually served as these kind of early lessons for other industries that would be caught in that crossfire, whether they're Tesla or Apple or the National Basketball Association. (laughs) And I had this world where my book was coming out about Hollywood's dependence on China at a time when... China, it seemed, had largely abandoned Hollywood and didn't really need it anymore, had surpassed the need for any kind of Hollywood partnership. And so a lot of the Hollywood sources that I would talk to were suddenly left holding the bag. And this market that had once seemed so promising and so lucrative and frankly, life-saving was suddenly saying, you know what, we might not need you anymore, right? Which is the sort of the ultimate sign of, of growth or, or evolution. Mm-hmm. And so that has been interesting to see as we're talking here today, there are stories of China's leader Xi Jinping traveling to Russia 
mm-hmm. to meet with Vladimir Putin. And when I see these headlines, I think back to like these moments in reporting the book that serve now as these sneak previews for what we're seeing now. I mean, one example that comes to mind is I was in Shanghai in 2019 for a film festival. And there was a party that night honoring the first ever Chinese-Russian co-production. And it was a movie, a science fiction movie that had been produced by a, a Russian director with a Chinese cast starring Jackie Chan and Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> and there was the typical film festival party, you know, cheap wine and, and hors d'oeuvres honoring this kind of partnership that they were saying is going to just sort of deepen these ties between the two countries. And we laugh because it's a Jackie Chan, Arnold Schwarzenegger vehicle. But in that scene, there's like these kernels and these sort of seeds that you can see growing into these larger geopolitical alliances. So that's how I'm thinking a little bit about China right now. When it comes to Hollywood, though, I have to say, it feels like every sort of topic comes back to one question, which is, where is Hollywood going from here? I feel like at times when I was working on the book, the Hollywood portions felt like an obituary because I was describing a Hollywood that really doesn't exist anymore. Well, one of the strong themes from Red Carpet is certainly Hollywood bending over backwards to try and accommodate Chinese interests because there's so much money now coming from the Chinese film industry. And yet here we are in a world in which China and Russia are collaborating in certain ways. How does Hollywood negotiate that tension? And what level of fear are you sensing among film executives right now? There's quite a bit of fear, existential, I think. (laughs) Existential fear. You know, embedded in your question is this fascinating theme that I turned over in my head over and over again, which is, what do we expect from Hollywood? Mm -hmm. Because Hollywood has never been a nonprofit. And it's never been a subsidiary of the State Department. I don't think anyone wants it to become that. That would be the China model. And yet we do have this expectation that American movies will do America's bidding to some extent. And I think it's probably born out of World War II and the efforts that directors like Frank Capra had. in John Ford. John Ford, exactly. And, And this is all covered in that wonderful book, Five Came Back. Um, that that sort of the effort that they had in boosting the Allied effort through their filmmaking. And then I think maybe in a less explicit fashion in the 1980s, when you had this kind of Reagan era cinema, the, the top guns of the world, the Rambos of the world, sort of showing America pounding its chest on screen. But I, I don't think the studio executives working today view patriotism as part of their job description. No. And even before the Russia invasion of Ukraine, there was reluctance to anger any considerable market, right? There's a reason why all the James Bond movies of recent years have this kind of stateless villain with a vaguely Eastern European accent who's kind of living, you know, in an undisclosed location. It's because you don't want to alienate any potential audience. And as these global alliances form too, like, Let's say a studio says, we have a script here and we want the villain to be Iranian, right? And that might not be too controversial because in real life, there are, there are tensions there. Well, now that we've seen this kind of China alliance forming or this China involvement forming with Iran, it is very plausible that that same movie will not be screened in China mm-hmm. because Chinese authorities don't want to promote a movie or even just screen a movie that 
makes their friends look bad. Yeah. I mean, what country was that in Top Gun Maverick? Oh, God, I know. I asked the producers about that and they said, well, you know, it's not a bad guy versus good guy movie. It's a competition movie. They had all these responses. Euphemisms. These euphemisms. Yeah. And I actually think, I mean, as successful as that movie was, they don't need my feedback. But I do think it kind of gave that movie a lack of grounding. You describe this as an existential threat. How big an issue is it if we are in a sort of Cold War with China, if you will, and other countries in that orbit. Um, How big of a headwind is that for our entertainment industry and our culture generally? I mean, our media culture. So the streaming strategy does provide something of a buffer against the China question. Let's say the China liability, because streaming services are not really penetrating China in a real way. The Chinese government has made it clear that they don't want to have foreign competition for their own streaming services. However, if you're Disney Plus, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're ready to greenlight the Dalai Lama series for (laughs) streaming that you were looking at because any kind of, let's call it like offending element in a corporation can prove radioactive for the entire parent company. So (laughs) every streaming service operating today is attached to some larger corporate parent that still has some holdings or some concerns in China, whether it's a theme park or whether it's trying to get their theatrical releases into Chinese theaters or sell their toys to Chinese parents, right? (laughs) Now, the one exception of that, I would say, is Netflix. They really are just sort of a one business (laughs) entity at this point. And so they have a longer leash. They've hosted certain documentaries and shows and things that I think other studios would be reluctant to touch when it comes to China. But again, they're going to run into as many issues as, as any other studio, because let's say they have this, you know, this Tibet script that you can't pass up. Chances are that's going to be a very hard movie to cast because no actor is going to want to risk getting on China's bad side. Mm -hmm. No producer is going to want to touch it because as China has shown in the past, they certainly aren't going to release that Tibet movie, but they also might not release your next six movies as kind of retribution for making the Tibet movie in the first place. So I don't think that the decoupling that a lot of people are seeing necessarily heralds a new day for free expression. You mentioned Disney, a topic that I know you've been writing on quite a bit in the last four or five months. In November, Bob Iger, at that time, the former CEO of Disney, sort of much honored, uh, much lauded CEO over many years, had stepped down and his handpicked successor, Bob Chapek, had come in. And in November, Chapek was removed by the board and Iger has come back in to run Disney once again. So Disney being the sort of classic company where its politics and its entertainment elements kind of go hand in hand. So what's going on over there? And how do you see this, if you do, as a harbinger for some of the global issues we're talking about? Disney has always been first among equals when it comes to the studios. And they enjoy, I'd say, a stranglehold on their fans that I don't think you can really point to in any field. I mean... One of the first stories I did on The Beat was about families who sneak cremated ashes of loved ones into Disney World to spread inside the park so that their family members will be there for eternity. (laughs) And I mean, what other business has people wanting to, I mean, like even, you know, people love Apple. No one's spreading their ashes at Apple stores that I know of, right? 
Or at the Universal theme park. Exactly. But the past year in Disney's world, so to speak, has really been unprecedented because I covered Disney all through the Trump administration and they managed quite adeptly at avoiding the tribalism of that era and really striking this political tone, if you could even call it that, of just being like progressive enough. Hmm. They were certainly like making decisions that when it comes to casting or with certain storytelling or certain kinds of characters where they were certainly leaning into more progressive representation, but they never tipped too far. They never became a Mm -hmm. target for conservatives. And then somehow Bob Chapek and his team in about a week managed to alienate the left and the right. And Mm -hmm. um, Bob Chapek, who everyone knows is relatively conservative as far as entertainment executives go, ironically finds himself the target. It's going to be a fascinating case study for business schools to look at and how you can see a brand tarnished so quickly. Mm -hmm. But then there's this whole interpersonal element here too, because while this was happening, everyone was hearing that Bob Iger was not hiding his absolute disdain for how his company was being run. And the image that I kept conjuring was of the fifth year senior, you know, roaming the halls of the high school in his, in his letterman's jacket. I remember that guy. And, right. and I would even talk to people who would say, you know, it's one thing to gossip about your former employer, but like, this is getting uncomfortable. Like, you know, it would just come up out of nowhere. He would bring it up to people who we had just met. There didn't seem to be that much discretion. The natural follow-up was, you know, well, does he want to come back? And I think that was, that really felt like fan fiction until it happened. And then like a lot of these things, as soon as it happened, I thought, well, of course, right? Like it seems obvious that that's how this story ends. Now the story isn't over. And I think a lot of the problems that made Chapek's record look so shoddy are still problems that the company has to face, right? Uh, the, the China question is not getting easier. Mm-hmm. The political question is not getting easier. You have Ron DeSantis running for president in part on his attacking of Disney. The red button cultural issues. Exactly. Yep. And to your earlier question, you have a lot of uncertainty around a streaming model that Bob Iger had said was the future of his company. Let's dip into the streaming question here because it was last April 2022 that Netflix released what are sort of referred to as canary in the cold mine numbers, which were their first subscription numbers showing negative movement. And Wall Street went nuts, basically. Not just Wall Street, but all the other entertainment companies who were just putting all their chips on the table towards streaming. So can you tell us a little bit about what that business model was meant to be, how cable gave way to streaming and what streaming going to look like? Well, I think what's happened is the metric that success is measured against has changed. When the streaming, let's call them the streaming wars started, which I would say started when Disney announced they were going to start their own service. And until that point, I think most of the studios were happy to let Netflix do this streaming thing and try to figure that out. And then Disney announced they were going to pull all of their movies and TV shows off of Netflix and become a competitor to Netflix and launch its own service. And then suddenly we had HBO Max forming over it. Warner Brothers, Paramount was launching its own. 
And you started to see to almost like a comedic degree, like everyone had a streaming service. It went as niche as you could possibly want in terms of how many streaming services were were launching. And Wall Street was really rewarding the subscriber growth because the streaming services convinced Wall Street to grade them as they would tech companies, right? Which is measure us on future growth, don't measure us on present day revenue. And a lot of the streaming services were able to gobble up market share really quickly. So companies like Disney, they had a built-in audience, obviously, but a lot of others might through promotional discounts or going overseas to much less expensive markets were able to say like, oh, look, all of a sudden we have 15 million subscribers. Now we have 25 million subscribers. And that growth was the metric of success. And then it seems that there's been this rapid shift. And now the watchword in Hollywood is this lovely acronym called ARPU, which is average revenue per user. So so it's no longer enough to say I have 15 million subscribers if the average subscriber is basically netting you, you know, four or five cents a month or something like that. Mm-hmm. Best way to understand this, I think, is India, because India for a long time was seen as this like really fertile ground because there are so many people there. There's a real culture of uh, smartphones. So there was this sense that we could just go and hoover up a lot of subscribers. Mm -hmm. But you can't charge a lot of money in India. There's also not a real culture of recurring payments, interestingly Mm -hmm. enough. So the ARPU... One of the worst acronyms of all time, I think we now have to say. Really awful, right? I apologize for even polluting (laughs) the Sun Valley podcast (laughs) with it, but... Um, I would never put it in any book. I'd find some <laughs> other way to describe it. But basically, you go from hoovering up subscribers to having to make sure that those are like high value subscribers. Mm-hmm. And that's the correction that's happening now. Starting to separate the wheat from the chaff. Exactly, exactly. So, so who's rising and who's falling, would you say? What's so mind-boggling, John, is like, so a couple of years ago when Warner Brothers and Discovery merged and created Warner Brothers Discovery, it seemed like it was this, okay, now we're we're basically entering an era where it's going to be Goliath versus Goliath. But it took about 48 hours for everyone to say, wait, Warner Brothers Discovery isn't big enough. It will eventually need to merge with another entity, whether it's Comcast or what is now called Paramount. <laughs> I've been watching a lot of Star Wars and there's always these like scenes where you see this giant spaceship and then you see it in relation to a yet bigger spaceship <laughs> behind it, yeah. right? And and I feel like we're at this moment where these companies and these brands that I think we all have this thought of as being these kind of titans of media are actually the Davids today. Mm-hmm. They're not the Goliaths. Yeah. And put that in comparison to the actual tech companies that are trying to get into this space like Amazon and Apple. And you see how... These entire businesses mm-hmm. are rounding errors for these balance sheets. So that's why I used the word existential earlier, because that's what feels existential about it is for a lot of these vaulted companies that we've thought of as these kind of culture warping producers of entertainment, a lot of them just don't see a world where they are not just very, very small fish. We're still watching movies and we're still watching shows What part of entertainment's present do you think is most indicative of its future? So if we use the 
Oscars and the sweeping victory of a movie like Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is my son's favorite movie. And I still feel I need to go back and see it again <laughs> to understand what exactly happened, although uh, I really enjoyed watching it. Is there something about a movie like this that signifies more than just the sort of usual love fest of the Academy? Is it the way that it's told, right? It's the use of it, technology in the way that the movie is made. The way that it so clearly and vibrantly pushes the envelope of the medium of filmmaking as we've understood it. So that's a long way of saying, what's your temperature read on this? And what is your gut feeling about what's happening in the industry? Some of which may make you excited and some of which may give you pause. Hmm. I First of all, I love what you were saying about the victory of everything everywhere all at once. I think in, yep. in 40 years, some historians are going to have a lot of fun looking at what that victory at this moment Right, graphing, graphing it. Yeah, yeah. A few things about its victory. One is I've watched the Oscar campaigns now for several years. And one thing I don't think you can underestimate is just the fact that the actual campaigning. And it was one thing that struck me when I moved to LA. I think I was conscious of the fact that Oscar campaigns are not just sort of blind ballot meritocracies, right? That the use of narrative and oppo research, I mean, it really is as campaigny as presidential races. And most of us don't see this, right? We're, I mean, you're there and we're not. We just see the results. Exactly. And I think you can't underestimate in recent years just how much it seems like the victory has gone to the table that everyone wants to be at. Mm -hmm. So the year that Parasite won, you knew when the cast of Parasite came into the room, every victory at the preliminary awards seemed like outsized compared to the others. Same with Coda. Coda had this yep. real warmth around it. There was this real affection for the cast and the entity around the movie. And it was mm -hmm. very much the case with Everything Everywhere, where leading up to the Oscars, they were like the fun table at the wedding. <laughs> and, and I think you hit on this a little bit, which is that it just felt like the cool table to be at. It was cool, but it wasn't alienating <laughs> So I think it checked a lot of those boxes. And then once the die is cast, it's very hard to knock those front runners off because they just start yeah. collecting the early prizes and it starts to feel like a fait accompli. I don't know if it necessarily heralds a new day for independent filmmaking in Hollywood. I was just talking to an agent the other day who was telling me that every time they sign a new talent, the first thing they ask is, how do I get into a Marvel movie? Right. The Marvel industrial complex, mm -hmm. they're kind of modern day studio systems. Yes. And they're the way to ensure global fame or access to the global market. One of the new building block methodologies of these companies is to try and create mini verses out of any movie that's done well. So we just had Creed 3, which I haven't seen yet, but I, I certainly will go, being a fan of all the way back to Rocky. But... They're trying to create a sort of creed verse. Their language, not mine. Obviously, Marvel is the prime number one example of that. But everywhere they go, they're sort of Yellowstone and all the uh, Taylor Sheridan, that whole paramount world that he's creating. One show after another seems to be they're trying to build something where everything feeds off of something else. And I don't know whether that 
strikes you as a defensive strategy or alternatively a bold stroke for the entertainment business. Uh, I have my own feelings about it from a storytelling point of view that are not entirely sanguine, just because if you're not in that verse or you have no desire to be a part of that verse, it's going to take up more and more oxygen and money and eyeballs and, and so forth in the universe generally and leave less and less, obviously, for stories that are just on their own, one-offs, if you will. But I don't know how it looks to you and what you see if you feel that that's a sustainable direction. I think it's sustainable, which is why it's being pursued, but I think it's very risk averse. And it's interesting. I've also just noticed anecdotally, it feels like everything that is not tied up in some kind of franchise strategy, I, I think is being graded on a curve because we are so hungry for original storytelling that feels like what we yeah. remember Hollywood as being. I don't know if necessarily the Hollywood we romanticize was the Hollywood that we thought it was, yeah. right? Like, I mean, I'm reading this new book, Oscar Wars, that Michael Schulman wrote. That is, is it it's very fun. It's great. And it's just catnip for people like mm -hmm. us. And I just finished this chapter about the 1976 or 77 race. And it was like Nashville versus One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest versus Jaws versus... I mean, it's just like one heavyweight after another. Yeah. But then he also notes that, you know, it wouldn't be long until Jaws 2 and 3 were coming out. And that maybe it wasn't necessarily like this Eden that we remember. But what I think is interesting is that so many people working today mm -hmm. either worked in that moment or are old enough to remember it. And I think that's where the tension and the despair comes from. It feels like there are these people who remember one world but are now having to... Mm -hmm. I mean, talk about a multiverse. They, they remember one world, but they're having to live in another. So this leads me to a sort of final pivot. We're talking about the ultimate verses, right? And so Star Wars has to come to mind. I happen to know something about the book you are embarking on or in the middle of working on now, but I, I wondered how you'd feel about telling us a little bit about what that is. Right, so the book is about Star Wars. It's going to be a cultural, economic, political history of the franchise. Great topic. It is. It feels bigger than China most days, I have to say. <laughs> I think it is bigger than China. And what's been fascinating is since I've been working on it, just seeing how ubiquitous Star Wars is in the culture, I see it everywhere I look now. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to point to any franchise that has achieved the economic or kind of the mythic proportions that it has. And so what I'm trying to do with this book is ask what cultural appetite was there for this story and what business decisions were made mm -hmm. that allowed it to succeed beyond anyone's wildest imagination? And where does one begin and where does the other end? So somewhere between Joseph Campbell, George Lucas, and Wall Street, right? We have to sort out. I love that holy trinity. As someone who is reading The Hero with a Thousand Faces right now, Oh, to, to think about this. I mean, it's a fascinating topic because it's grounded in this sort of like hard business case study, but it's also a bit of a trampoline that you can jump off to examine questions around heroism and who we elevate, what stories we're drawn to, what stories a country is drawn to in a particular moment in its life. It's interesting to see when and how Star Wars traveled the world and what countries it resonated in, what countries it didn't. Mm -hmm. 
But right now, I'm doing a lot of reporting on the 70s and in, on the world that Star Wars premiered into. <laughs> and one thing that's really fascinating is like you can't have imagined a more fertile environment for this movie to premiere into. It was coming about a year after Jaws. So there was a theatrical marketplace primed for a blockbuster. But then there are also all these fascinating stories and articles I'm finding about around the same time of its premiere, there was a story about how robots were being added to assembly lines <laughs> at car factories and so that you would have auto workers working alongside robots for the first time. And it's like, wow, I mean, there's something that has nothing to do with Star Wars, but you can imagine how a movie with Luke Skywalker and C-3PO would resonate in a culture that's also looking at robots coming yep. into the workplace, right? There's all these kind of tendrils like that that I'm trying to kind of catalog. It's fascinating. While also in a few weeks, I'm traveling to London for the annual fan convention, which is as surreal as you can imagine. And you have your Chewbacca suit ready <laughs> no, no, uh, from the, from you the know cleaners. You what's funny is last time I was in Paris, I bought this kind of like khaki jacket, like more casual jacket. And that's sort of my uh -huh. reporting jacket because it has these nice deep pockets for my notebook. Yeah. And the last time I was at one of these fan conventions, someone thought it was like really fashionable Han Solo cosplay. It's like, well, I, guess, I guess it works. It's serving multiple purposes here. Never goes out of style. Exactly. Yeah. You know, one thing I'm currently in the midst of editing um, the actor and director Griffin Dunn's memoir yes. and Griffin's best childhood friend all through their 20s was Carrie Fisher. Mm. And they were actually living together that year that she was back and forth from London shooting Star Wars. Oh, I had no idea. She thought it was going to completely tank. She kept talking about the hair, like her hairstyle and the costume. She had no understanding of what would happen to it. It seemed like a really like crazy idea for a movie. And she just didn't have any sense of what was going to happen. And then it premiered at the Zigfield. The energy radiating out of that one theater, people are still talking about. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. But yeah. then imagine being Carrie Fisher, doing something in your professional life that you have that attitude toward or those expectations yeah. for. And then 30 years later, people approach you as though you're a deity because of your, yep. your connection to it. It's just so much larger than anything, right, in the culture. Mm -hmm. So just before we go, what surprised you the most as you dip into this world of popular culture and mythology and also just plain fandom? What I'm thinking a lot about, and this chimes with our conversation today, which is we can kind of understand why it was the hit it was in 1977. Mm -hmm. The book, I think, is going to cleanly turn on the acquisition of Lucasfilm by Disney yeah. in 2012, which gave Star Wars a sort of a second life. And it's been successful, but there have been so many creative problems with it. There have been problems in the fandom. There have been things that they've just not been able to make work. And so... One of the things I'm wrestling with is this question of, is it the handling of Lucasfilm or is it just the world we live in now mm -hmm. can't receive something as monomythic as Star Wars? Right. As mono anything. Right. In a world when there are so many different voices and information sources at all times. That's a fascinating question. I mean, you mentioned Joseph Campbell. I mean, there's a Joseph Campbell Society that hosts these panels at these Star Wars fandom conventions. And at the last one I went to, they were raising the question of whether or not the hero's journey should be thought of as more of a collective hero's journey. Mm -hmm. 
That's interesting. The reason I wanted to write this book was because when I went to one of these fandom conventions in 2018, I was walking the halls of Chicago and I thought to myself, every political, cultural, economic cross current outside these walls is reflected on this convention floor right now. Mm -hmm. And so it feels like this fantastic proxy in a way to explore so many questions about life in America. And that now feels very intentional, right? In a way that it might not have done decades ago. Exactly, exactly, right? So it's almost like the machine is Mm self-aware. No joke, John, I'm writing that down. Machine is (laughs) (laughs) self-aware. Well, I'm glad you got something out of this. No, uh, we got yeah, a lot. Great. That's a chapter. <laughs> totally. I cannot wait to read the Star Wars book. And you'll definitely come back to Sun Valley, I hope, uh, with that. And we'll have another chat. I need no encouragement to go back to Sun Valley. <laughs> no encouragement. Good. Listen, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. This has been great. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Page. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating or review. A good one, we hope. To catch all the latest from the Sun Valley Writers Conference, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to listen to this conversation in its entirety, or to any of our other talks, you can find them at svwc.com. I'm John Burnham Schwartz. Until next time.